welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, May 24th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you want to get into an interesting debate with friends and family members, ask them what their most underrated Disney film is. Uh, Not the popular ones that everybody loves, but the underrated ones. Chances are you might hear such films as Robin Hood, Treasure Planet, Meet the Robinsons, Atlantis, The Rescuers, Brother Bear, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Those are just a few of my favorite underrated films. But, But if you pushed me, To have to make a decision on my number one all-time most underrated Disney film, it would have to be The Emperor's New Groove. Released in December of 2000, The Emperor's New Groove features the voices of David Spade, John Goodman, uh, Patrick Warburton, and Eartha Kitt. It also includes music by both Tom Jones and Sting, so how can you go wrong there? The main character is Emperor Kuzco, a spoiled, rich, and pampered leader of an undisclosed nation. His foil in the film is the large but gentle-natured Pacha, who's the head of a nearby village. In fact, this is his village. Peaceful, serene, idyllic, actually inspired by the real-life Machu Picchu. Well, Emperor Kuzco decides that he wants to build his summer home in Pacha's village, And thereby, he will force the residents who live there to move. And when Pasha asks, well, well, where will we live then? Cusco responds with, don't know, don't care, how's that? Initially entitled uh, Kingdom of the Sun, The Emperor's New Groove was an original script written by David Reynolds. However, I realized this week as I was studying 1 Kings chapter 21 that at least a portion of the plot seems to be borrowed from the Old Testament. Welcome to the fourth week in our sermon series, Mountains and Valleys Journeying with Elijah. We've been following this prophet of God from his initial appearance in 1 Kings 17, revealing a divinely ordained drought, to his time in the wilderness, and then with the widow and her son in Sidon, to his mountaintop showdown with the prophets of Baal, to his spiritual and emotional breakdown in the wilderness as he faced burnout. By the way, if you've missed any of the previous installments, you can find them both on our church website, pumchurch.com, or on our church app. But I want to begin with this marvelous bit of writing from Frederick Beekner in his whimsical book, Peculiar Treasures, A Biblical's Who's Who. Here's what he writes. Whereas just about everyone has a cross to bear, King Ahab had two. One cross was the prophet Elijah. If, generally speaking, a prophet to a king was like ants at a picnic, Elijah was like a swarm of bees. The other cross was his foreign-born wife, Jezebel, who had gotten religion in a big way back in the old country and was forever trying to palm it off on the Israelites, who had a perfectly good one of their own. Unfortunately for Ahab, the two of them sometimes got working on him at the same time, one from one side and the other from the other. Case in point, the Naboth affair, Hmm. which is precisely where we're going to be examining uh, up front and personal today, the Naboth affair. 
Open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Kings, beginning at chapter 21. And let me just say, uh, if you have a Bible and you're not familiar with it, there's no shame in going to the table of contents at the beginning and looking up where that passage is and finding it. 1 Kings 21, verses 1 to 2. You can also follow along in the Bible app, and we have that uh, bookmarked every week. So when you click on it through the uh, PUMC Church app, it'll take you directly to that chapter. 1 Kings 21, beginning at verse 1. Later, the following events took place. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. And Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, so that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. For starters, I, I want to pay attention to the way that the narrator names each person, right? It's going to be incredibly important as we move through this story. So we have Naboth the Jezreelite, meaning that Naboth was from the town of Jezreel. And then we have King Ahab of Samaria. Samaria is where this king uh, of Israel chose to set up his palace. Actually, his father chose to have it there, and, and he kept it. So here's a map of the ancient Near East at the time of Elijah. This is where Jezreel is located, and here is where Ahab's capital of Samaria was. Told you. Notice anything interesting? Like, they're not really that close to each other. So evidently, the king had a second palace in Jezreel, right next door to Naboth's vineyard. Now, Jezreel was a strategic location in ancient Israel for a number of reasons. For starters, it was made up of rich farmland. In fact, it was known as the breadbasket of ancient Israel. Second, because of its low-lying plains, it pretty much formed a passageway that linked the Transjordan with the coastal plain. So a lot of people and a lot of traffic passed through the city. So back to our passage, King Ahab knows that Jezreel is the breadbasket of Israel. He sees that his neighbor has a very productive vineyard, and he decides, wow, we would make a wonderful royal vegetable garden. So he commences negotiations with its landowner, Naboth. Now on the surface, it looks like a decent offer, doesn't it? Like the king offers him a choice. He can have a better vineyard in a different location, or he can take the cash equivalent of its current property value according to the Jezreel Municipal County Property Assessor, I'm sure. <clears throat> Verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral inheritance. Now, the skeptical ones among us might think that Naboth is just trying to play hardball, right, in hopes that Ahab will counter with a more generous offer. But that's not exactly what's going on here at all. In fact, there's something much deeper than meets our 21st century eyes. Richard Nelson, in his interpreter's, uh, interpretation commentary on First and Second Kings, notes that according to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, it was critically important for inherited land to remain in that family in ancient Israel. Leviticus 25 even seems to prohibit the permanent sale of inherited lands outside of one's family. In some ways, the, our ancient Israelite brothers and sisters looked at land the same way that our Native American and Native Hawaiian brothers and sisters look at the land, and that is, it is a gift from God. It is not a commodity. Walter Brueggemann, in his Smith and Helwey's commentary on First and Second Kings, also remarks 
that in ancient Israel, land and owner are inseparable. They are one in the same. It's, it's something that really belongs to the family, not just whosoever happens to be the owner at any particular time in history. So the reality of Naboth's statement I can't, is literally, I cannot, by Israelite law, sell or trade you the property because it is my family's inheritance. Like, even if you offered me all the money in the world, and even if I wanted to sell it or trade it to you, it would be legally impossible for me to transfer this land out of my family. That is what he's saying. And of course, as king of Israel, Ahab should have absolutely known this already. Verse 4, Ahab went home resentful and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you my ancestral heritage. He lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. Now, first of all, Notice that the narrator continues to link Naboth to his hometown, Jezreel. Naboth, the Jezreelite. He could have easily just has labeled him Naboth, period, because he already mentioned Jezreel earlier in the, in, the, in the story. But no, this is this ongoing connection that the people have to where they're from. Second, this verse is a wonderful piece of insight into the true character of Ahab. One commentator even went so far as to say that his reaction to Naboth's rejection displayed his flawed character. His sullen and uh, resentful demeanor doesn't seem very royal, does it? Especially for someone who has the responsibility of overseeing an entire kingdom, including its administration, protection, and advancement. Why are you spending so much time worrying about a vegetable garden? Michael E. Williams the editor of Storyteller's Companion to the Bible Commentary writes this. People who wield extraordinary power usually respond to it in one uh, or two ways, or in some combination of the two. They either rise to the occasion and become what we tend to call statesmen, although women also need to be included in this expression, or else they lapse into a kind of immaturity that the rest of us would never be able to get away with. So here we have the most powerful man in Israel pouting in his royal chambers and refusing to eat. Enter the true power broker of the family, the queen. Verse 5. His wife Jezebel came to him and said, Why are you so depressed that you will not eat? He said to her, Because I spoke with Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard for it. But he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel asks about his sullen mood. Ahab tells her, but do you notice what part of the retelling Ahab conveniently left out? Yeah, he failed to mention that Naboth said he can't because it's his inheritance. And Israelite law forbids it. He simply says that Naboth rejected his more than fair offer. Verse 7. His wife Jezebel said to him, do you now govern Israel? Get up, eat some food, and be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now, Jezebel's response is quite interesting. Depending on how you translate the original Hebrew, it can either be a rhetorical question, uh, aren't you the king of Israel? It could be a sarcastic barb, uh, you make a fine king of Israel. An encouraging prediction, you will exercise royal authority in Israel. 
or even a, a reprimand mixed with invitation. Be the king that you are. Now, it's easy to paint Jezebel as the bad guy or the bad girl in this case, and maybe she deserves it. But it may be helpful for us to take a moment to get a sense of where she might be coming from. Michael Williams notes that kings in the ancient Near East held virtually absolute power. Jezebel wasn't just the queen, she was a princess too, meaning that she grew up in the royal family of the king of Phoenicia. And so she watched her father be a king all of her life. And she knew that whatever a king decides to do, well, that becomes the law. In fact, in some countries, the will of the king was equivalent to the will of the gods. No amount of private property or personal integrity could stand up against the most insignificant whim of a king, right? And the land is just a commodity to which the crown has a special and privileged claim, especially when it comes to insubordination by a mere subject, a, a peon. A lesson must be made here, she was thinking. Verse 8, so Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and seat Naboth at the head of the assembly. Seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring a charge against him, saying, you have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. In the words of the immortal Ron Burgundy, well, that escalated quickly. Uh, Jezebel doesn't mess around, right? When she sets her mind on something, she goes for it. And King Ahab seems to be just a passive bystander. The, the queen assumes the royal authority, and she gets Operation Vineyard off and running. Now, some may wonder if she's guilty of mail fraud here. No, no, no. Whoever has the king's royal seal and uses it, well, that becomes an official decree by the king, even if the king didn't himself, in fact, author it. So Jezebel sends word to the elders and nobles of Jezreel, think in terms of the leaders of the city. Leaders would be, of course, uh, beholden to their king. The plan is to frame Naboth on trumped-up charges and get him executed, and it works like a charm. In Israel, it was unlawful to convict someone of a serious crime on the word of just one witness. That could be hearsay. The book of Deuteronomy states there must be at least two witnesses uh, to corroborate a charge. So Jezebel ensures that will happen by enlisting the help of a couple local Jezreel scoundrels. Now, the Hebrew phrase here is a combination of the words without and profit or worth. So this literally means worthless men. Verse 11. The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters that she sent to them. So they took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Despite having grown up around Naboth and his family, despite Naboth's vineyard, having been in the community of Jezreel for generations, they've probably all even drank wine that his vineyard had produced over the years. Despite supposedly being leaders of their town, evidently these elders and nobles feared the queen more than they felt compelled to do what was right. And Naboth was murdered. 
What's the saying? It takes a village to stone someone to death or something like that. A lot of people had to participate in this treachery. And if you're keeping score at home, it's now Jezebel 1, peasants 0. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't share one more insight about Jezebel that I came across in my study this week. It's from uh, the authors of the Women's Bible Commentary, and they brought up an interesting point. Hebrew scholar Alexander Rofi concludes that this whole tale of Jezebel's treachery against Naboth is the work of a post-exilic editor or author, meaning that the story was written after the Babylonian exile, when uh, so many of the Israelites were taken from their country and for 70 years lived in Israel. Well, the shifting of blame onto this foreign woman, remember, Jezebel wasn't from Israel, she was from Phoenicia. Well, this is consistent with what the books Ezra and Nehemiah are warning about when it comes to the dangers of intermarrying, of marrying someone outside the country who have different faiths, different religions that will lead you astray. It makes a lot of sense to me. Also, due to the fact that women often get the shaft in both the history books and in cultures. Nevertheless, this is the story as we have it. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Go down to meet King Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood. I mean, just when Jezebel has imagined that her royal authority was absolute, we get the true authority, the word of the Lord. Again, listen to how Frederick Beekner describes this meeting. Down through the years, they kept meeting like that, usually in secluded places, always at critical moments. Ahab arrived incognito, the dark glasses, the Panama hat, the business suit, and Elijah with a 10-day growth of beard. Abraham addressed him as the usual royal pain in the neck, and then Elijah let him have it with both barrels. When God got through with him, Elijah said, there wouldn't be enough left of Ahab to scrape him off the sidewalk, and and what there was, the dogs would take care of. As for Jezebel, not only because of Naboth, but because of all of her imported witch doctors and totem poles, she would end up the same way. You see, this wasn't just a crime against one person, Naboth. And and if we're being completely honest, it wasn't even just a crime against true justice. You see, in the eyes of the Hebrew people, this was a crime against God himself. That God had set up the people of Israel from the very beginning with an understanding that the, the rights, the property, and the life of all people were under divine protection. That kings and queens cannot operate with impunity, for they all stand under the authority of the Lord God Almighty. Thus enter the prophet Elijah. Elijah is called by God to give Ahab the, shall we say, not so good news, that there are consequences to one, one's actions. Both he and his beloved bride are about to see their kingdom, shall we say, go to the dogs. Verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you. 
because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. I will bring disaster on you. I will consume you and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Naboth. And like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. Well, Ahab may have taken over Naboth's vineyard by royal decree, but he now must face divine judgment. Elijah is given no show-stopping miracles to perform in his midst, no supernatural acts of nature here to drive home his point. No, just an old-fashioned tongue-lashing by the Holy One via Elijah. Because God sees what happens. Even when justice is perverted and wrong appears to have won, God sees. And God will hold people responsible for their actions. Now or down the road. Elijah informs the king that his reign is coming to an end, and it's going to get ugly. He even says in verse 23 that his wife will meet a similar fate as he. And then to drive home the point of just how evil this commander-in-chief actually is, we get to verse 25. Indeed, there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord urged on by his wife, Jezebel. And there you have it. If you're keeping score at home, it's no longer Ahab 1, peasant 0. God is on the scoreboard. And then something completely surprising, quite possibly even shocking, happens. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put sackcloth over his bare flesh. He fasted. He lay in the sackcloth and went about dejectedly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster on his house. And for the first time in quite possibly the entire Elijah saga, Ahab actually appears to take responsibility for his actions. He's genuinely penitent and seek God's forgiveness through his actions of repentance. And you know what? God actually granted him forgiveness. I have to ask you, what do you think about that? What do you think about God forgiving someone like Ahab? Before you make your final decision, let me uh, turn our attention to Jeremiah 18, verses 7 to 10. At one moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, says God, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring upon it. And at another moment, I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that, uh, that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I intended to do it. So there you go. God can change God's mind. Especially when it comes to how we are responding or not responding to God's judgment or to the work of the Holy Spirit that is constantly moving in our lives. 
Now, you might say, Pastor Jim, that wasn't much a reprieve for Ahab. I mean, his kingdom is still going to come to an end. It just wasn't going to happen for a while. Nevertheless, it's significant that this minor reprieve came when he turned back to God. Now, it still ended pretty badly for Jezebel, and if you want to read about it, uh, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 9 and get all of the gory details, and they are gory. So, where does this leave us, friends? I mean, as we wrap up this curious story in the latest installment of the life of the prophet Elijah, for starters, I think it's a reminder that God calls all of us to a life of justice and righteousness. That neither we nor our leaders can operate with immunity when it comes to perverting justice to our own needs. That God hears the cry of the defenseless. God knows when people are being cheated and taken advantage of by others. And God will bring justice sooner or later. Wasn't it Jesus who said, what we do to the least of these among us, it's as if we're actually doing it to him? And second, no matter how you feel about the guy, you have to take heart in knowing that God forgave Ahab once he repented in all sincerity. Because, hey, if God can forgive someone like Ahab, who, as it was said, sold himself to do evil like none other, if God can forgive him, then imagine what God can do with our lives, folks. Now, we may not be guilty of framing our neighbor so we can steal his vineyard, uh, his donut shop, or, or even moving an entire village to build our summer home called Cuscotopia. Nevertheless, none of us are perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. And yet, and yet if we humble ourselves, if we admit to God and to others when we mess up and we do that all the time, if we come to God with true repentance, then even we can be forgiven. And maybe you need to hear this message today. There is nothing you have done in your life that cannot be forgiven by God. We still have to face the consequences, of course. But nothing is impossible with God. That's a promise. Thank God for that truth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.